Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Howdy. And yeah, this is week four. We've made it through a full month of podcasting. That's exciting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Who knew? Who knew we'd get to four? Um, two seemed amazing. Four seems like it's almost permanent fixture now. So it seems. Let's see how long we can yeah. keep it going. Well, uh, we yeah. might have a Christmas break, Mike. Well, just a couple of weeks. <laughs> okay, so for today, I think we are taking a look at some interesting news on AI. Uh, we're looking at the article on how the DeepMind project uh, has solved a 50-year-old folding problem, uh, which is all news to me, but I'm looking forward to taking a look into it. Uh, and then we're, we're, we're definitely going into territory here that we're, we're not exactly experts in, but it's an interesting article, so we'll, we'll do our best to... Uh, um, work our way through this. Work our way through it. Yeah, it's fascinating, and obviously, seems like it's uh, yeah something really important for science. Uh, and then in our tech spotlight, we're going to take a look at uh, hosting applications in the cloud, which we are a little more au fait with. Uh, and then later on for our interview, um, we are meeting with a chap named Martin Donkersloot who is a uh, one of our uh, Dutch colleagues who is going to be discussing. Oh, um, yeah, so he leads the um, scheduling activity. So he looks at how um, production is managed and how it's planned for from a supply chain point of view and how then you take that information and um, produce schedules within the manufacturing domain. So uh, that's his area of expertise. Fascinating stuff. Okay, uh, let's jump into the news. Uh, so, this is all about DeepMind, which, uh, from my memory, yeah, it's a sort of, it's, I believe it started with chess, so it was a big sort of AI project to, trying to teach a computer how to play various video, or various games. I know it's been used for video games as well, but that sort of computing power is now being used in, uh, in a more medical, scientific area. Yeah, so DeepMind were a, 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 a well are a, a UK-based, London-based AI lab company that were bought by Google a few years ago because um, of their success they were having in that domain of um, you know beating chess champions and uh, Go and things like this. So they they called their different AI modules um, different things. So you know AI Go or something like this to take on that particular challenge. Okay. And as we've seen, that kind of technology has really been used um, predominantly in the uh, sales and marketing domain, um, and everyone's kind of conscious of AI and how it um, uh, affects their buying behaviours through social media and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as you said, Alex, this is looking at a different different thing, um, which is uh, really about how AI can. Um, work out how proteins are folded and the importance of what proteins are within the biz- uh, within our body and why it's such a um, a change to how these systems are um, used really it's fascinating stuff and it's it's one of those things that computers do very well i guess because it's massive amounts of uh, single calculations isn't it so it's something that would take a human being days, weeks, months, years, but they can do it in a relatively short period of time. 
Well, they, they were saying that the, the, uh, it's such a com complex problem, this, you know. Um, the protein folding was a kind of grand challenge that was set out to biology 50 years ago about trying to work out how the ribosomes take the, you know, message in RNA and convert that into these proteins. And um, um, there are particular, you know, something like in the public domain there are 170 different protein sequences um, that will run through the AI algorithm uh, trying to work out how these proteins folded and how it all worked and all of that type of thing but there's actually a, a mind-boggling variety of shapes that can be created um, it's actually oh, it's a Google cubed which is one followed by 300 zeros. So coming on to your point of there, it's like there's basically no chance that a human could have worked this stuff out. No, it's staggering. Um, because the numbers are just such orders of magnitude greater than we're capable of even considering. Yeah, and the, the um, I'm looking at the article now, the computing power is, it says here, 100 to 200 graphics processing units. So that's a huge amount of calculative power uh, in a single place uh, that I guess yeah and it, but it's not it's not extraordinary um, uh, I mean we're in Exeter the home of the you know supercomputer for the Met Office or whatever it is mm -hmm. it's not at that level but it's still a reasonable amount of power required but it's showing really that iterative process that the learning algorithms are going through that are optimizing those things as they learn more about those protein sequences so the more they learn really the less if you like computing power they um, need as they go along um, but the the application of this um, you know we're saying okay AI can play games and AI can um, do marketing very well but how does that advance human <laughs> you know humanity um, and I think that was something as highlighted through the COVID crisis that actually these computer tools that we've created to sell ourselves stuff um, could actually be used for good really and I think this is a real good example of where AI and um, commercial companies have started to realize they can put this power into a different domain uh, so if you look at the COVID situation and some of the pro some of the vaccines that are being generated they're kind of using that mechanism these um, messenger RNA uh, um, vaccines are taking a part of the uh, COVID um, a protein basically the spike that you see on the balls um, and uh, that's the kind of approach that the the, um, the vaccines are trying to do is to simulate that or to inject the messenger RNA into the system so it, all the, our bodies generate those protein spikes and um, but so gone oh no I was going to say so it's and it's that as you were saying it's a sort of it's iterative but it's cumulative as well so the more information you give them the more information they work on the quicker they are at processing that information yeah well it's, it's back to that kind of pattern recognition isn't it that, so mm. the more good information and that's the key really whatever information you feed it has to be good and that's why this kind of um, public database that's got the um, 1,700 1,000 170,000 protein sequences um, in there it's very 
great source of information for these types of uh, systems. Um, and therefore it can be started to use on many other um, uh, biological problems that are out there um, as well. So um, I think we've seen how technology can really develop the advancement of these um, with the, these vaccines. It's quite amazing to think that most vaccines until this wave have take um, years uh, to get approval. Um, yes, with the gene sequencing and all of the kind of um, capabilities around gene sequencing and the different technologies that have been um, created for these um, mRNA vaccines, it just shows you in a matter of months we've come up with a vaccine using these capabilities now, which is quite incredible. It is, and it's. I think it's something unique to science that you have these projects that might seem to an outsider quite frivolous or you know it's teaching a computer how to do a game in the past but actually as with all science it leads somewhere you know these these projects always find uh, use somewhere now that's back to the the good old motivation isn't it mm. i mean it's where do we where do we have, where do we get that source of uh, motivation to want to do it and i guess that's where covid has really given the world that that acute sense of urgency um, which means that we've started applying these technologies to these problems mm. fascinating stuff well i mean uh, yeah i mean it's a it's a an interesting news story i'll be keeping my eye on it for sure as i'm sure a lot of people will um, but I've probably reached the edge of my AI knowledge. So uh, unless you have anything else to add on that one, perhaps we should move more to our own uh, areas of expertise. Yeah, should we move back into our comfort zone? That sounds I good. That's been a nice thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are looking today at how uh, we host applications in the cloud. Uh, if you'd like to jump in. Yeah, so um, this is the kind of a slightly the difference between what we call industry three technologies and industry four technologies if you like um industry three technologies have been uh, built around a kind of mo monolithic application approach mm -hmm. which which can be split into three things you could have a front end you can have the business logic and the um the database technology that underpins it but ultimately they all kind of were getting installed um predominantly from things like CDs and things like that, um, uh, or DVDs. Um, and, and then there'd be some kind of installation process, there'd be a configuration process and all of that type of thing. And um, the applications themselves could scale to a level, but they couldn't really scale outside of the confines of the, uh, the, the hosting computer. Mm. Um, which has always been a problem for the application world, really, because how do you scale? You can scale inside a computer, but you can't scale outside of a computer. Um, so what cloud technology allow, has solved is that kind of problem, that you can, you can scale both in and outside of a computer, um, and that's really what a, a, one of the aspects of a cloud is. But So how do you host those... Um, industry three applications because you don't want to throw away all of that information or all of that legacy system mm -hmm. um, and it's often referred to as like um, the difference between if you are architecting a greenfield site 
compared to a, a brownfield site, really. Um, and what they mean by that is that you've got a whole load of legacy applications there. You might want to introduce a cloud, but how do I bring those legacy applications, those brownfield applications, into the cloud, knowing the kind of um, architectures and approaches they were built upon? And that's kind of the challenge a lot of businesses have because they might be interested in moving to cloud platforms um, and adopting the kind of internet technologies that cloud offers. But they're kind of caught in that in that almost catch-22 where they're kind of going, look, I've got all of this stuff that I've bought um, and I don't want to lose the value of that stuff. Is it a bit so, sort of on the sunk cost fallacy kind of thing that we've already, we've put all of our resources into this? Yeah, time, effort, money, all kinds of aspects. But I mean, there is quite a good um, picture that if you can picture in your mind around this, if you could imagine a, a sailboat with an anchor dragging behind it, um, the sailboat can't move forward much whilst they've still got the anchor behind it. So, yeah, and that, that's the kind of analogy of architectural debt or the industry through applications. Mm. And what you really want to do is just get your sail full of wind so you can move forward quickly. <laughs> Um, but you're slightly being held back, um, and that and that's that's both a technological thing and a, and a human motivated thing. Again, we come back onto that kind of thing. So, some of those things we have in our own business. Obviously, we have our own um, set of applications, and as we will talk with um, Martin about um, uh, <coughs> his application, his world uh, with um, Siemens Op Center. APS. Um, how do we bring those applications that customers got in their factories that they spend money on into the cloud? And that's where things like um, virtualization can come in. So virtualization was kind of an intermediate step between um, installing applications physically on a um, a piece of hardware, some tin and wires. Right. Um, so virtual machines allowed you to create a virtual. Um, PC of which you could install stuff on and then you could move that virtual machine to other um, physical machines. So replicating like that real world equipment within the cloud basically. Yeah, so now what you can do is take those virtual machines and host them in the same environment that you've got your completely scalable nano services in the cloud and all of that new technology mm. that lives there. But that doesn't prevent you hosting these applications in that same environment. And you'll still get some of those benefits around the supportability of it, um, the uh, the, uh, the, the um optimizing, load sharing, and all of those kind of things. So you can take those physical applications, you can create them into a virtual um, uh, machine, and then host those virtual machines in the cloud environment. What that also means you have to consider is not just the supporting and hosting of that application, but also how can you talk to it? Um, a lot of those applications were built with different types of technologies on how to talk to each other, really. Um, and that's another key part to it, is that the internet has brought in um, service-orientated architectures, um, which basically mean that you don't need to have a monolithic application. You just need to have a service that's going to do something for you, you know. Okay. Um, and and a 
typical example of that, if you like, is um, uh, when, and that's one of the reasons why cloud has gone to nano services because that aligns that that small, agile bit of code that does a specific thing um, can then uh, be hosted in the in the uh, cloud environment and scale very easily because it's not a great big bit of co uh, code, and the APIs um, <coughs> that allow applications to talk to each other are common use in the uh, in the internet so if you look on the internet um, you can easily go to any of your favorite applications in your social media world um, twitter facebook or whatever it is even linkedin um, and you can look at their uh, their api and that api is um, not only completely documented uh, using things like um, uh, Swagger and Postman, um, which allow you to get a completely documented but functional interface. They often provide um, sandboxes so you can um, try out those interfaces. And that is really quite easy. And when I talk about easy, you can, once you know what you're looking for and understand it, within a matter of hour or two, you'll be able to create and talk to another application. From one application to the other using modern API technology. Mm. The problem is those old applications don't have that capability. That's what I was going so, to raise, yeah, because I think modern applications are built with that in mind. I know anybody who's designing software now, uh, a good API which links to other systems is sort of par for the course. But then, yeah, how do you get these legacy applications working well with newer ones? Yeah, and that's where we have to look at building wrappers, wrappers around the application that translate the inner works of that application and expose those um, those APIs. What question that begs is what type of API to generate? There are lots of APIs out on the market, but more specifically what I'm talking about is what is that? What is that function? What is that data structure that you're going to call and uh, you know from one application to the other? Because the ideal situation is you can swap one application out with another without affecting anything, and the API remains the same, and the un the underlying application can easily be swapped with one to another. Mm. So you might have an industry three application today. But that might be re-engineered into an, an industry four application, but you don't have to worry about the changing of the interfacing. So <clears throat> that begs the question around standardization, um, because if you had standard interfaces, API interfaces, then everything could be swapped out quite readily. But the problem with that is we don't always like standards and it's very hard to drive standards and there's both commercial reasons for not wanting standardization and also um, just standards tend to be slower than the pace of technology change. Um, but there are businesses out there and we're working with one on one of the innovation projects called TM Forum. And they're very much, they're a kind of a body that is, has lots of members, um, and those members are all a part of the telecommunication industry. Um, and they're very, they're promoting this concept of open APIs. With open APIs, they're kind of publishing these standards, publishing these um, APIs through a committee of uh, companies that are part of their membership and working with companies like ourselves on these innovation projects to try and drive the benefits of standardization um, through the use of their common API or their open API platform. And I think that's a nice balance between um, 
the commercial world dealing with that problem um, and not requiring driving hard um, uh, industry standards from uh, industry bodies if you like mm. so the industry bodies might define the kind of concepts around it but they don't have to drive into the individual type of function or the data that's passed between one function and another and what that will allow for is for us to automate businesses automate business interactions within supply chains um, and then especially when we talk about the telecom industry and the 5g type of projects and all of that type of thing that's when we can really start um, streamlining uh, or creating a frictionless, as frictionless as possible interchange between one business and another. Um, so yeah, we've gone from how do I move a industry three application into the cloud to going actually if I could create that kind of architecture around it and the concept of um, uh, standard APIs, then actually I'm future proofing my business as well for when um, it does move into that kind of industry for open supply chain approaches. Fascinating stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's to me, it feels like one of those things that perhaps was held back in the past by it's it it requires a level of cooperation between various different entities that might otherwise not want to share information, but actually it's information that helps everybody progress if we can uh, uh, all all interface correctly. I, I don't know if it's quite right, but you, what you're saying is right, but is, is it this circular economy people are talking about? Who knows? I don't know. Is it an enabler for the circular economy? <laughs> we'll see. Maybe a topic for next week. We'll have a look. So here we are in the interview portion of the Atlas podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Martin Donkerschloot, who is uh, business development with ACS Global. If you'd like to introduce yourself, Martin. Yeah, please. Thank you. So my name is uh, Martin Donkerschloot. I work for ATS Global headquarters located in uh, the Netherlands. And I'm uh, working as a business development manager globally. So we assist our, our local uh, divisions on how to sell, how to implement, support customers, specifically for advanced planning and scheduling. Okay. And I think uh, we had some ideas with where to go with this chat. And I think you wanted to start off discussing perhaps trends in the industry. So, Yeah, perfect. Yeah, well, what we see is that... Actually, the majority of our uh, customers um, have to deal with similar challenges. And uh, it's all about becoming more agile and, and more flexible and to manage uncertainties. Um, what we see is that they need to reassess their position in the market. Um, and they are fully focused on, on improving customer satisfaction and uh, at the same time reduce their costs. And I think this is the, the, the only way to uh, to survive in the fast-changing environment like we are in now. So what we see is from a costing perspective that they dispatch smaller batch sizes, which allow them to reduce the costs of inventory and working process. And uh, what we see is that they change from a, a make-to-stock environment into a make-to-order environment or an assembly-to-order environment. 
which allows them to shorten their lead times and become more flexible uh, towards customers' um, demand changes. But you can imagine that it has a, a major impact on, uh, on their manufacturing process. So instead of producing a batch of 1,000 pieces, uh, they now need to manufacture, let's say, 10 batches of 100 pieces or maybe even 100 batches of, of 10 pieces each. So sequencing these orders and determining the best uh, schedule is becoming more important. And um, it's not only that they need to sequence the different operations um, of of a works order in, in an efficient way, uh, avoiding unnecessary changeovers or waiting times, but they also need to make sure that let's say all these subcomponents uh, are finished just before the final assembly process starts. So actually it's really, really challenging time for them. I think um, when we first met, Martin, was probably uh, when we met with the uh, a company called Preactor in the UK when they had yeah. their user group. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the challenge then, as you said, was probably be more exacerbated uh, really with with the smaller batch sizes so you know where we were talking about being able to order and like should schedule larger batches and that was still a challenge the smaller and smaller the batches get the bigger the challenge is so how do manufacturers adapt to that you think <clears throat> well to be honest uh, martin the, the majority of the manufacturers still use what we call manual systems or Excel-based systems to create production schedules. And uh, what we often see is that despite the hard work of their planners, the planner still releases an inaccurate schedule towards the shop floor, and that will cause a lot of disturbances on the shop floor. So you can imagine that a small change in in the sequence will will result in in huge downstream effects for the other departments so it's not only creating a schedule uh, but updating a schedule based on the actual process is uh, something different it's very difficult for them uh, to oversee uh, the complete picture yeah yeah i agree what do you think alex What's your, what's your take on this one? <laughs> uh, I think it's, yeah, it's obviously very difficult. I mean, if we look at this year alone, things like COVID have had a huge effect on supply and demand. How do you think, how do you see businesses being affected uh, and, yeah, adapting to those sort of changes? Yeah, well, I think we, we should make a, a distinguish between um business benefits and operational benefits. So mm -hmm. from, from, a, from a business point of view, uh, we can help them to become more profitable. Um, as Martin already mentioned, if they have access to a advanced scheduling system, they are able to create accurate schedules semi-automatically. Um, they have the ability to compare multiple scenarios based on criteria like uh, setup times or delivery performance or lead times, um, resource utilization, for example. And then they, they are able to choose the schedule they want to release. So advanced scheduling allows them to make better decisions and, and choose the best strategy for their company. 
And while it's a semi-automatic system, the, the planner will then save at least, well, let's say, 50% of their uh, time spent on scheduling activities. And that allows them um, to become more flexible. So instead of trying to keep things running and acting as firefighters, they now will probably allow last minute changes. So they can now focus on uh, improving the delivery performance um, or determining the effect of last minute's uh, rush orders. And they, they can even assist salespeople in, in determining the um, earliest achievable delivery dates, for example, which then help them to, uh, to close the deal. And and from that kind of operational standpoint, how do you, how do you take that? What's your view on the operational standpoint? Yeah, well, once once a schedule is is released to the shop floor, the the operators have access to what we call a feasible work to list, uh, which contains the expected start and end time for each operation, and it helps them to gain a more controlled way of uh, production. By, by by instructing the operators on the shop floor with accurate and up-to-date information. So the next step uh, is to also keep track of the progress. So in, in every manufacturing environment, changes will occur. Um, you can think of operators leaving home sick, maybe due to the COVID um, machine breakdowns, um, material shortages due to late deliveries, and the question is, how, how do you keep track? How do you keep the schedule up to date? So to be able to keep track of progress, you, you need some kind of shop floor uh, system. So it should at least display the latest released work to list uh, with information uh, like when the previous operation will be finished, um, when we expect them to start, to finish, and of course, when the next operation is scheduled. So while the, the schedule could change very often, this, this list should at least be, be digital, but also needs to be updated frequently. And, and next, you can also think of, of additional information So um, to instruct the operator. So which batch of materials do I need to process or which tool do I need? Um, um, are there any specific instructions if it's a, a customized item, for example? How do I need to set up the machine? Or maybe if there is, uh, if there is a need for, uh, maybe they also need to have access to technical drawings or something like that, which are normally stored in a PLM system. Mm. So once we created a accurate schedule and we instructed uh, the people on the shop floor properly, um, they start manufacturing um, their items. And during that process, um, operators are able to capture a lot of, well, let's say, valuable information, and that's also relevant for for the planning department. Um, but what we see is that most of the planners they don't have access to that information. Actually, the the manufacturing process itself is a it's a black box for them. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the issues, isn't it? It's that kind of how do we how do we create that link? And I think it's led to that phrase like digital threads, isn't it? You you talked about one there about what, um, how to make something via the PLM, 
um, and then you talk about what to make and when to make. Um, but actually, to make that work, you need the feedback, don't you? Yeah, it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and for, for in most most of the planners, I said well, the, the, it's a black box. So, uh, but they need they, they 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 need to have feedback from from the people on the shop floor as well. Uh, on demand, and uh, what they like to know, for example, is did they, did they actually start this operation? Um, how much did they produce at the end of their shift? What, were there any breakdowns? Um, how does a delay uh, affect the downstream process? Uh, are we able to 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 finish this specific order before 4 p.m. Uh, or do when do we need to postpone, for example, the the the, the shipment? So the, the data, the data is there, but it is not av available for the for the planner. Um, um, but not, not only the planner needs that information; the information is also needed for um, to be analyzed afterwards. For example, so if a process engineer could use that data uh, to determine more precise uh, setup times and run rates, for example, that would would be very beneficial for the company. Um, may, maybe there is always a problem with a specific item on a specific resource. So why why don't we change that specific resource for that specific operation? So the information is there, but the, the, the question is, are you able to use it? So Alex, we're coming to the end here. Um, I always put you in this hotspot situation. <laughs> have you, <laughs> I have think, you, uh, have you got a killer question for Martin there? Well, the killer question, we almost touched on it there. I mean, with all that in mind, how do you see these uh, things progressing into the future? I, I think, I think if, if, if you start using the Atlas tool um, and <clears throat> try to, try to improve your processes um, the customer will become much more flexible and agile and mm. it should be able to compete against their competitors in a very very cost effective way um, so a customer starts with maybe this shop for data collection system but I'm sure that if they uh, if they use the system a couple of weeks, they, they find out that there are so many other business processes that they want to organize and orchestrate by the use of this system. And I, and I think it is a really good case here of Industry 3, if you like, matching with Industry 4, because scheduling is an Industry 4 capability. It's kind of just been built on slightly older technology, ultimately. But merging these two things is quite a, you know, it's quite a quite a powerful alliance there so um and that allows us to offer some you know attractive business models that go along with it i think which is also an exciting proposition um so yeah i think it's great um i think it's really interesting insight um and uh if anyone's interested in it of course contact us and we'll explore it further yeah mm. for sure exciting stuff uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Martin, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So that's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, as per usual, I've lined up a nice quote. I was thinking this week we talk a lot about moving from the old to the new, so I've got something along those lines. Uh, and this one is attributed to, the, to Mark Twain, 
and he says continuous improvement is better than delayed perfection there you go mark twain is probably the most quoted person i think there is but that's a nice one i imagine so i said it was attributed to him i'm always a little bit skeptical but it <laughs> sounds like something he'd say why not let's keep it like that sounds good okay thank you so much martin we'll be back next week for perhaps our last of the year uh, but we will see okay i'll see you then cheers martin bye 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 if you're looking for more information on the world of Atlas, or if you have any questions at all, please head on over to weareatlas.com and let us know your thoughts.